Welcome to the Immortal Art Podcast. I'm your host, Eldin. This is episode 12, Art Dialogues number 3, with Hendrik Zeitler. He was my teacher of photography in Wallet Academy. I took two of his courses. Hendrik played a pivotal role in my artistic journey and experimentation with the photography. He's a true mentor. Hendrik's work has inspired me and his expertise in photography is great. In this episode, we will explore his own photographic journey, hear about his artistic philosophy, the history of photography, and gain valuable insights from his experience. Whether you are an inspiring photographer or simply someone with a love for visual storytelling, Hendrik's wisdom is sure to leave you inspired and with a deeper appreciation of what happens behind the lenses. Before I begin, there is a Patreon link for the podcast if you want to support me. For the price of a cup of coffee per month, or a donut if you feel like it, you can help this podcast. You can cancel it whenever you want, whether the money doesn't suit your needs, or if there is an issue with your finances, no strings attached. You can find all the details on Patreon. If you haven't, make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast, so you will never miss an episode. I appreciate it. You can reach me at immortalartpodcast at gmail.com. The podcast has Instagram, Facebook, and a Twitter page. Also, if you like the podcast, rate it on your favorite podcast app or leave it a like on a YouTube. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Also, I made a mistake in pronouncing your name wrong, so I apologize for that. And uh, introduce yourself a bit. Yes, great. Thank you, Elden. But my name is no problem because in Sweden everybody thinks I, my name is Henrik and nobody can pronounce my last name. It's Henrik Zeitler, but you can say whatever you want. <laughs> but uh, I was born in Germany a long time ago and I studied photography in Germany first. Then I came to Sweden as an exchange student now 25 years ago. Then I liked it here in Gothenburg and I stayed and stayed and stayed and I got my master's degree in 2003. I studied some more and I ended up now being both a teacher at the university here in Gothenburg at what is now called HDK Warland, Unit for Photography, Film and Literature. I teach photography and I do my own work. I work as an artist, doing exhibitions, doing books doing what what I find interesting <laughs> and I'm trying to help the art and photography infrastructure a little bit. I, I'm on, on a couple of boards and active in, in a couple of organizations making it possible to live and have this flora of uh, art and photography in Sweden and in Gothenburg and I even work commercially as a photographer mostly for other artists and um, galleries and institutions which is very nice because, because I can meet a lot of people there. And as I said, besides exhibitions, I like photo books very much. I buy way too many photo books and I've so far published five books and I'm very, very interested in this form of publishing and distribution of uh, photography. What is the role of photography in contemporary art? You could even ask, what is the role of all the other techniques in contemporary art? Because <laughs> when you look at art, photography exploded really. And I think it was in the 60s that the first photographers got solo exhibitions at bigger art museums. And 
then it grew more and more. And from time to time, it's very much lens-based art, like photography and video and even photography not using lenses. People don't really like to talk about techniques to say, this art museum, we show photography, we show painting, we show sculpture, we show textile arts. But, uh, but I think it's still important. And for many uh, artists, um, they have a relation to the techniques as well. And of course, there are painters doing photography, photographers doing doing sculpture, but still you, you change technique and usually don't mix it so quickly and easily as one might think. And uh, I think the role of photography is huge in contemporary art nowadays and the last 70 years or something. How the photography evolved over the years? Photography has, compared to many other disciplines within art, quite short history which is, of course, longer than moving images, much longer than digital art, but it's around a little bit less than 200 years. And the first maybe 80 years or something, it was not really getting into art at, at all. And photography has the thrill that it, it's both documenting what's in front of it. It has this quality of being an index, what you have in front of the lens or camera or whatever you use. But of course, photography as well as most other disciplines of art, they are trends, they are different uh, movements, they are different relations to it. And it's even reflected in, in how it's distributed. Like photography books have exploded last 15, 20 years. You see much, much more books being published. Uh, in the past, photography and exhibitions was quite small. Suddenly in the 90s, people started making big prints and you can see some photographers use a series or the sequence or single images or use photography and text and there are trends coming and going visually and content like the environment was totally absent almost in fine arts in the art world until um, 2000 something but now it, it's everywhere and it was the same with other questions like gender migration and class questions which were coming and going in photography as well is photography existing only to capture air quote moments or to tell a story or both? It's maybe one part of it. It's a lot of different relations we can have, have to photography. And it's um, definitely not the same as just fixing your, your gaze at looking at something and framing it. But photography has its own language. It has its own rhetorics. It could capture a moment but it could be as well about making a point in one or the other way. It can tell a story as much as a bronze sculpture, but in photography, it always evokes a feeling in people's heads that happened. The photographer has witnessed something, even if, if you can't find any traces of that in the photograph anymore. There's always something bleeding into the photograph that has a trace of reality. It's hard to get away from it. That's even why abstract photography is so hard because you always look for something. Oh, but what was it really? What is behind that? <laughs> when one takes a photograph, let's say on the street and capturing the street moments, is there any tips that you can share with us how to both technically and visually capture this air quote street photography, document them and also artistically express oneself? There's this uh, uh, trope or this, this direction photography, which is called street photography. And it's defined as people walking around with the camera, taking pictures often in a big city and very often humans involved as well. 
And for me personally, my advice would be, don't do that. <laughs> uh, shy away from it. If there's a student or if there's anybody who says, oh, I'm interested in this, can you give me any advice? Of course, I can give, give advice. You can walk around and just practice your way of seeing. Just practice what is my favorite lens, should I use wide angle or telephoto? How do I want to frame something? How can I react to something? How can I see something and challenge myself in different angles, climbing up and down and stuff, pointing my camera at different things and just practicing my way of seeing. But besides that, I think it's hard to get away from, as you said, some story to tell or something that is interesting. That if you walk around the city, it could be about uh, gentrification of the city or relations between people. But if you just walk around and get funny or uh, intriguing angles, you can be a great photographer, but then you just have the surface. And sooner or later, you might get tired of it if you can't fill it with anything that is relating to your life somehow. And of course, it can be connected to as well, looking for, think, oh, I like very much telling the story, going out when it's raining or snowing or blowing or early in the morning when there's sun or when it's overcast or at night or blurry images or using flash or something. That is something that's, that you can add to even have the whole story to keep together. If you have a series of something, it's easier to see the connection between the images. That's much better than just showing the best of pictures from 20 years of street photography. There was uh, this notion when photography was emerging, portraits were always very static, yeah. very painting-like. Nobody smiled on it. There was no movement on it. It was always done in studios. It was always done in a controlled environment. And then it went gradually on the street. Yeah. For example, if somebody wants to take a photograph of uh, a portrait photograph, how they should uh, uh, use the natural light or should they use uh, these huge reflectors and light like, and like strobes, flashlight. Yeah. Yes. There, there's always this, this relation between what you can do and what you do. I just went in a workshop for making daguerreotypes, which is one of the first photography techniques. And I haven't done it myself because it's such a pain in the ass, but there's a sensitivity of the film or even the digital sensor, which is described in ISO setting, ISO. So if you have 1000 ISO, you can take a picture in the dark almost. And if at 100, you get a much better quality, but you don't get so much light and you need a longer shutter speed. It's harder to capture fast movements. And with this old technique in the beginning of photography, it was 0.004 ISO. Oh. That means if you take a picture, if you wait for a long time for enough light to reach the picture, uh -huh. that means getting pictures of people moving, it was impossible, more or less. Mm -hmm. so, it, so it took a long, long time before it was possible with new techniques, with wet plates and then dry plates to gradually approach the possibility of catching movement. And then, of course, people should sit comfortably with a headrest in a warm studio with a big window for light coming in. Photography from the beginning was always catching both humans and from the beginning, even architecture and landscape as well. And we can remember photography in the beginning was a late romantics. People went to places like Rome or Egypt and looked at temples here and there. And there were photographers standing, selling pictures to them. 
portrait was in the 1840s, I think, already. And one of the first photographers even extending this notion of the portrait was Hippolyte Bayard, who took a picture of himself where he acted as a drowned person. It was both uh, staged a little bit humor and play with the notion of what we see and what we think we can see. But the photography really mimicked more paintings around the turn of the last century, around uh, 1900. And that was when photography really tried to get into the field of fine arts and was trying to get away from mechanical reproducing and even had content which was like more symbolistic content. And that was called pictorialism, which was very, very big, maybe between 1900 and 1917, usually people say. But when did photography enter the war documentation? The first war documents photography was the Crimean War, which was, I think, Russia and Turkey, maybe. <laughs> and that was in the 1860s. And the Civil War in North America. Oh. There were teams of photographers working there as well. And... Of course, it was a big enterprise to do that. There was as well the notion that photography should be uplifting for your own troops. There's one famous image of a valley with a lot of uh, cannonballs, where it's known that photographer arranged it and put more cannonballs there to make it look more dramatic. And in World War I, of course, there's photography use. At that time, you already had a lot of handheld cameras as well with very big lenses. And there were even photographers working indoors at political meetings, for example, like, like Erich Salomon. And um, at World War I, there's one thing which is very interesting. There was one photographer, I just can't recall the name sometimes, <laughs> it's yeah, missing it's my head, who took pictures of planes and bombs exploding and soldiers running. And he used a lot of negatives, like 20 negatives, and put them together to one very dramatic image, like a photo collage, which looks very realistic. Is that the time when people start using photography and, yeah. air quote, revealing and capturing ghosts behind people and uh, scary mm. images? That has always been happening. Photography was often used as well, which is very far away from this war photography in uh, esoteric circles, like Swedish painter Strindberg was interested in, in that as well. And then photography was sometimes used in a way to try to show ghosts, when, but very often trying to sheet people, just capturing the shadow or a double exposure or something and having this little bit more sensational notion. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here's a shadow of uh, fathers and mothers who, who are dead coming up. I think that was known from the 19th century, from the 1880s or something as well. People used photography in that kind of manipulative way. But in war photography, it was very much propaganda, but it was very hard to transfer it to printing plates. In the 1890s, I think, the halftone, the rasterization of photography, then was much easier to print photography as well. In the 20s, 1925, uh, Oskar Barnack in Germany invented the Leica camera. He used movie film, put in a very small camera. It was the 35mm camera, uh -huh. which is still used in digital cameras. It's still the first format. A lot smaller camera, a lot of pictures in one roll. Cameras could be handheld, put in your pocket, and that really revolutionized the way of using photography, that, that it was not so cumbersome to carry a heavy camera. You could have it around your neck and run around. Mm. Those larger formats they were still present for a long, long time. 
even news photography. But then the 35mm camera got popular by the 1930s and changed this way of the mobile active camera. When was these cameras with the light bulb that I saw often in the films? In yeah, the light bulbs, the flash. It was in the 1800s, you had this magnesium flash, which was very, very dangerous because it could set things on fire. And then later you had the flash with, a, I think it was in the 2030s, people started using flash with a light bulb where you had only one exposure for every flash. So you changed the light bulb every time. Now, I remember when I was one of the eight, it still had those flashes, which you had to change every time after using. Uh-huh. And the electronic flash came in the 80s or 90s or something, which you could use over and over again. And in news photography, there's, for example, one photographer called VG, which was his artist name, US-born black photographer, who used this flash very much for taking pictures of accident, of police capturing people, which formed very much this way of flashing at something, exposing something. For over 100 years ago, there was this Danish photographer who moved to New York, Jakob Ries, and he took pictures of poor people in New York City. And he was not very empathetic. He thought, or his idea was that those people are criminals, they have a lot of diseases, and we should close down those places, we should renovate everything, maybe put people in in prison or something. Oh my God. And and he went in with the police a lot and flashed at people who were sleeping or being somewhere. His idea was not social reforms, but putting people in prison more, more or less. Which is very different, for example, the photographer who worked a little bit later called Louis Hein, who took portraits of child labor. And oh. he was in a campaign for abolishing child labor. He photographed the poor as well, but much more in a way we have to improve their lives. Not the poor are a threat for us. <laughs> what was the reaction of the first photographers when people saw it? I don't know all of the reactions, but of course, then there was the socialist movement and social reform movements. There was a huge group of very conservative people, of course, whose idea was, what do we have to do about poverty and class divisions? Reaction was just suppress the poor even more (laughs) instead of making it better for the poor. I think it had a big audience who thought, oh, it's really good to show how bad it really is. And it's it's their own fault, of course. (laughs) I have to take a break. Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) If you rewind a little bit, I just got out my computer and, and we're looking at this photograph by Frank Hurley, who made this composite image of the World War One, which really looks like a movie. And it was taken with real soldiers and planes, but he composited of a lot of exposures. Much earlier, already in the 1850s, there was this picture by Swedish-born photographer Oskar Gustav Rehlander, and it's called Two Ways of Life. It's an allegory of the good and the bad way of living, and it's composited of 32 negatives. He had to put them on the paper and put them in the sun, so he had to move them and mask it. And it was, for that time, quite big, 76 centimeters. And it got a lot of attention when the British Queen bought it. So then photography already was recognized as something not just showing reality, but you can use it in an artistic way. It's a little bit of kitsch somehow, but it's very interesting that at that time people already saw this dimension of photography that you could construct something with it, not reality. It looks like anger. <laughs> yeah. Is now studio photography solely used for the model photography and fashion? Studio photography is a great way of controlling your condition. And you asked earlier about artificial light or natural light. And natural light is great. 
for example, being outdoors and having great sunlight, sunlight in the morning or evening when it doesn't shine from the top, but into your eyes, into the windows and, and you have those long shadows. It's really, really great, but it's very unreliable, <laughs> especially in winter. After four o'clock, you can't take pictures anymore. You can do a lot of great photography with just a window and a reflector reflecting the light back. But traditionally in a studio, it has been very much for commercial productions where you had to be independent from natural light, which could come and go all the time. So to take pictures of fashion, still life, of course, objects, furniture, all of that. But many artists, they want to construct their own scenes. They want to build up a room just as their artistic vision is telling a story, trying to recreate something from a different time and working with that. Nowadays, everybody has a camera on their phones yeah. and everybody can take photos of everything in millions. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> People taking photos vertically, not horizontally, because of the shape of the phones. Rarely I would see somebody flip the phone and take a photo. And usually those people are photographers. My question is, so how to do photography and especially artistic photography and stick out yeah. from the rest of the millions of photography? But I think that question is about 130 years old. Because in, I think it was in 1895, Kodak came with the first camera where their advertisement was, you just press a button, we do the rest. Of course, nowadays you can do the rest yourself, but then you didn't need any skills in developing or anything. You just took pictures and it was cameras. I think you could take a hundred exposures and just give it back to the store and you got all your prints. So every amateur just could buy a camera, press a button and get the pictures and make an album or something. But the very difference is now. Of course, photography as a social gesture, like exchanging photography and giving photographs to each other. That existed already with those carte visite and cabinet photographs in the 1860s. But now photography is not about anymore like sending a postcard or um, making a photo album showing this happened. I was there. I did this. Nowadays, photography is, I'm doing this right now. Yeah. It's much, much more immediate. Because of the social media? Because of social media, because of internet. You don't need social media. You, you, you can send it in, in a text message. You can send it in an email and show, look where we are now. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. look what we did last summer when I've de developed the picture. But here we are right now and everybody is sending it instantaneously. When I was a kid, we used to have these old um, Russian photo cameras yeah and uh, i think it was 35 or 36 per film yeah, yeah, yeah. and always 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 the last photo was either of a dog or a foot oh. or or something like that because we weren't sure is there anything left yeah, yeah. and i remember my a father picture of something uh, just taking one last picture and yeah. giving the film back <laughs> And a personal question, what do you prefer, analog or digital? It depends on what I do. And uh, as I said earlier, and for teaching, it's for just showing how do we compose, how do we use the aperture and shutter speed, and especially teaching on the distance via the internet. Digital photography is a great tool as well for commercial photography. Then I'm very interested in, in the history of photography and photography's own way of seeing things with different techniques. And for my own projects, I haven't used digital photography yet, but I'm still, I still just started exploring the possibilities of analog photography. There's nothing better or worse like 
black and white or color, but it's it, it just different and everything is, is great to explore. How do you approach your editing in digital photography? So when I work digitally, it's commercial photography. It's very much taking pictures of art and it's just showing the colors, the dimensions, the surface, the room as good as possible. For digital imaging, I think it's it's good to know that people nowadays, they are so spoiled or misled or <laughs> or influenced. People take pictures with modern mobile phones. The pictures are already edited. So there was some engineer programming your phone and somehow this idea of what a picture should look like already built into those phones and people are very used to that. So when people only take pictures with the phone, turn to a camera, like a, a DSLR, digital single lens reflex camera, they think it was much better with my phone because then all the editing is done already. And for post-processing, I could recommend to Photoshop or Affinity or Capture One. And very often you can't rescue something which is bad before. But of course, you can always adapt a little bit the exposure or the white balance. And you can even composite two different exposures. But my advice would be don't overdo it. <laughs> don't try to make something which is really too much. Like maybe 10 years ago, this high dynamic range photography was, was very popular. We could see everything in the shadow and everything in the bright lights. Don't be afraid of having something black or dark in the image. How does the choice of the photographic technique, for example, uh, black and white, long exposure and so on, affect the artistic message in the image? That always has to do with that you're used to something that comes from pictures that you've seen earlier. If you look at pictures that look like a portrait or, or that look like for commercial photography or look like fashion photography, of course, that influences in which way you regard a picture. If you, if you have this flash from the front against the dark background, you might think about news or police photography, or we might think about Renaissance painting. And uh, that's very good to be aware of and to know a little bit about art history and photo history, how you can both use those styles and play with them and you know what kind of expectations people have, but even to maybe find something that is really something that which is your own, <laughs> that you build somehow a set of techniques or approach that might be fitting for this, this one work. It's very hard to say something in general. I often think about that Sometimes when I see exhibitions or like the best of images, which is taken from news photography or like documentary photography, sometimes I think, oh, it's, it's very good. It's great pictures. It's sharp and great exposure and everything. But all the images look like they could have been taken by the same person. <laughs> There's no personal language very often. And having some kind of personal language, something that sticks out, it's really great when you open a photo book or go to exhibition, you get really surprised and think, I've never seen anything like this before. How do you balance technical proficiency with the creative expression in photography? Always when people talk about photography, they say, oh, do you need this technique? Do you need all this stuff? And why is it so technical? But I think if you make a bronze sculpture, <laughs> you have to know about the right temperature and the right technique. Otherwise, you will never be able to make a bronze sculpture. Yeah. There's always some kind <laughs> of technique involved. But the technique should just be a tool that you can use. 
And of course, technique can be something that you can play with, which can be visible, and it can be something that people think about, but it's your artistic vision that should be in the foreground, and you have to be so comfortable with your technique that you don't have to think about it anymore. How do you see photography fitting into the broader realm of visual art alongside traditional mediums like painting or sculpture? And how does digital photography impact photography as an art form? Sometimes there's exhibitions that mix different techniques. And for example, if there's an exhibition with artists from one country or exhibitions about maybe the notion of family or something about space or maybe migration or, or the environment or feminist issues. And sometimes you can really succeed that to mix different expressions that you have sculptures that communicate with photography and painting and it works very, very well. But um, very often many artists are specialized in their best at painting or best at video art and of course, because it's, it's a lot of work to explore one medium, it's very hard to handle all of them. David Hockney, for example, he did a lot of painting, did a lot of drawing, and for a few years he explored photography as well. And he did it in a really, really great way, which was really new for all of photography. And he came from painting and went really his own way in photography. How do you encourage your students to explore their personal artistic voice and or unique styles within the medium of photography? Yeah, that's a good question because when you look at photography or you look at arts, you have something that's your favorite. And very often you try to get as good images or paintings, whatever, as this other artist. And it's very good to know how they worked, what they did, I think very often about the work by one photographer. It's Danish photographer Søren Sulsker, and he took portraits of some of the great photographers in the world, and he used their own technique. Mm-hmm. So he took portraits of them that looked like, like images taken by those photographers. And he succeeded very well. He's a very good photographer, but still, it's somehow it's a disaster because he just makes a pastiche, he just makes a copy of their style, and then it it lost everything somehow. It's so depressing to see that something could be as well done as by someone you you really admire. It's it's not really interesting anymore. I always encourage students, if there's something you like, try to mimic it. Try to see how do they work. And from that experiment, look at all your accidents and look at how can I make it my own and combine different styles and slowly find something that I think, oh, this is something I want to go deeper with, want to explore it and don't stop there. Redo it until you're happy. And it takes a long time to find something that you're really happy with. Sometimes it's instantaneous and it's at first attempt but very often you have to have patience. Speaking of this uh, copying of artists, when Kandinsky made his abstract art or when Pollock started to paint with the splash of colors, there were millions and millions of artists who just copied that and became just copycats. Most of it might be very hard, but I think I could practice for a few weeks and make splash paintings like Jackson Pollock and probably they're technically as good as Jackson Pollock's images. But um, but then you ask yourself, why do you do that? Yes. <laughs> He's already done it. <laughs> How do your students use photography as a means of social commentary? Or what are the ethical considerations that photographers should keep in mind when creating their work? For example, Ron Javier or Kevin Carter. 
Yeah, Kevin Carter was a news photographer and yes. he's maybe one of the most well-known examples. There's a concept that was called um, victim photography by a photographer and photography writer called Martha Rosler. And very often you see images of people who don't have the possibility or power to show images of themselves. Mm. And of course you could say that we have to show this part of the world as well. But it's very much easier and with less imminent uh, consequences for the photographer to take pictures that are pointing downwards on a scale of class and social status and towards poverty. It's yeah. much easier to take revealing, in quotation marks, images of the poor and victims than of the rich. <laughs> like Kevin Carter, who you mentioned, he was many of the news photographers who took pictures of misery. And he was very well known for symbolic image because he was a starving child with a vulture sitting next to the child. He had other issues as well. He had a problem with, with a friend who just died, but he got so much pressure on it that he committed suicide quite quite soon after that. And there are a lot of images of poor and starving people and people dying or dead people, which are very unethical because there's this notion that photography is somehow telling the truth than more than painting. It's the same problem in artistic photography. Showing pictures of others is always a very sensitive thing. I think that's the reason why so many photographers turn to self-portraits. It's loaded so much because nowadays you think about photography can have a very quick circulation, especially digital photography, and that's very hard to handle. I want you to share about your book. In my own photography, I've been exhibiting a lot. And as I said earlier, I've published five books so far. And... Three of those books about my home area, which is called Hamakuren, in a suburb outside of Gothenburg. And in the last book I made now, it was cameraless photography. That means I didn't use a camera. I used light-sensitive photo paper, which I exposed in a mobile darkroom. So I took pictures which were more or less only shadows. I used a strobe to project parts of the landscape on my photo paper and then I put it down in a lightproof bag to prevent further exposure and then I processed the paper. And I'm always interested in like documenting the area where I live but always in connection to how does photography see the world and how can we challenge our own way of seeing something by using photography. I just throw away, I peel away a lot of all the questions about photography. Where can we find your books? Where can we buy it? Do you have a web page? <laughs> I have a website. can buy my books there, but they can find my publisher. I can buy the books there. Then it's usually at museum bookstores or art bookstores. And if you happen to live in Gothenburg, I have pictures hanging permanently at the art museum which is not the art museum of itself, but it's called Hasselblad Center, which is an exhibition space photography. And they have a permanent exhibition there. They can see two of my images in their original size, so to say. And there in the museum bookstore, you can get most of my books as well. Thank you, Hendrik, for this interview. I hope we talk more in the future episodes. Yes, it was great to come here. I, I really enjoy listening to stuff because photography, it's a little bit strange to talk about photography without being able to show it. But I think... Like like those this pod format or radio, it's a very good way of to to learn something and and hear about something because you can do something 
else at the same same time. You can drive a car or or uh, peel potatoes or cook or something and listen to it. Just watching YouTube videos, you can't do so much other things. So so I I really enjoy this radio Thank format. You. Thank you. This concludes this episode. We didn't know what else to say in this episode. I want to thank you for joining and listening. I hope we inspired you. I hope you learned something. The music is performed by my friend Sebastian. You can check his band Cadavra. There's a link below. Enjoy the song. Until the next time. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.